I gotta say, one of my favorite parts of training on Zwift is the community. Whether it's riding with new people you meet on the platform or riding with old teammates, the people that Zwift connects you with push you harder than you could ever push yourself, let alone when it's just you on the trainer, in your garage, or your pain cave somewhere. My next favorite part is the training. Training is a huge part of Zwift. There are literally hundreds of customizable training plans you can choose from. And every workout is an immersive experience that can take you from Zwift's world-class climbs to the streets of London, New York, and even to a new Japanese-inspired world. Those are just a few of the nine unique worlds you can explore. Many times, I find myself just riding around, checking out the sights and seeing new little Easter eggs they've hidden in the game. When I'm riding on one of the UCI championship courses or in the jungle on the gravel roads or inside a volcano, I'm just taking it all in. Time seems to fly by, but I still manage to get a great workout in every time. If you want to compete in races that put your training to the test and see if you're headed in the right direction, you can. There's a new event starting every five minutes, including massive group rides, races for every category, and time trials. Right now, you can join the Fun is Fast event series with training rides, races, and thousands of other riders from around the world to chase. It's really never been easier to find your fun training indoors. I love it. All you need to get started is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Zwift, where fun is fast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and my main man, Jens, over there across the Atlantic somewhere. How you doing, Mr. Jens Vogt? Doing pretty good. Um, we had here in Berlin since last Monday, or in other words, two days, school again for the kids. So we got three kids out of the house back in school, which means quiet morning for my wife and myself and we used it to have a great brekkie in town so i am actually perfectly happy wow it's that time of year already huh um yeah my daughters don't start for another two weeks but uh got one going off to college she's going to be leaving here in the next couple days her mom's going to take her up to um to college and drop her off and set her up and i'm going to stay home and take care of the five dogs that we have so i kind of feel ripped off a little bit but um not feeling ripped off was over the weekend, I got to go back to Colorado for the Copper Triangle, which is a one of the Roll Massif events. And people ask me, including George Hincapi, why are you going all the way to Colorado just to ride your bike for one event? Well, I've got a story to tell. In 1986, I did the first ever Connie Carpenter Davis Finney cycling camp in Copper Mountain. And that was really the beginning of cycling for me or the realization that I kind of wanted to do this as a professional because Davis was at the camp and then he was also racing, I think it was the Rocky Mountain News Classic at the time. The next year I saw him in the Coors Classic 
And both he and Connie really helped me, um, especially in my earlier years. I'd have to put them right up there with with my mom and my dad uh, giving me the most support. So it was really special to go back to this event because it actually supported the Davis Finney uh, Alzheimer's uh, charity. And they raised $120,000 for the Davis Finney charity. So um, it was great to go back and great to see them. Great to ride my bike back in Colorado. Any excuse I can have to go and ride in Colorado during the summer, I'll, I'll take it. But um, fantastic time. Fantastic time. But uh, yeah, the Olympics are in the books. Uh, they started racing again. We got the Tour of Denmark. We got uh, Tour of Poland. The Vuelta will be starting here in the next couple days. So man, it's just one thing after another. We're just uh, spoiled this year with the, the great stage races, the Olympics, and now the last Grand Tour of the year. Yes, that's coming up and um, hate me for it, but are we going to see basically the same teams uh, in the front? It's going to be uh, Roglic crushing everyone and second and third place will be a battle between Landa from Bahrain Victorious and Egan Banal Team Ineos. So the same teams like in the Tour or in the Giro, I guess, they will battle it out again. But I will still be watching it, of course. And are you going to be commentating? Through the Vuelta as well? Yes, again, commentating um, here from Berlin uh, for Eurosport. Um, yep, the entire three weeks. Awesome. So, Yenzi, I'm really excited about our guest today, Mr. TJ Van Garderen. Uh, known him quite a while. Uh, funny story was I showed up to the last ever World Championship uh, event that I did in 2007, and I got there a little bit late and the room situation was a little bit messed up. So I actually roomed with TJ when he was an under 23 rider. Maybe he, he was a junior, I forget. But uh, that was the first time I got to meet him. Um, great kid. I got to work with him on uh, at BMC for a little bit. I was always a big fan. He obviously had you know a great career. Um, he had a lot of pressure on him. I'll give him I'll give him that. I mean, He came out with those two fifth places in the Tour de France, and we all kind of pinned our hopes, our GC hopes on him. And he, you know, he had his ups and his downs for sure. But recently retired, he's moving to the other side of the barriers as a coach and DS for Team Education First Nepo. So sit back and relax and listen to our great conversation that we had with TJ Van Garder. All right. Well, um, today, as our special guest, we have Mr. TJ Van Garderen, recently retired pro, uh, known him for a long time. TJ, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, um, I just have this vision, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. Like when an athlete retires, he just goes to a beach and hangs out and, you know, drinks beer, goes swimming you know, relaxes all day long. But that doesn't seem to be the case for you, Mr. Director and Coach. Tell us a little bit about your uh, your retirement turnaround, because it seems like you're back on the road already. Yeah, no, I'm uh, jumping right into it. I mean, okay, I had a had a couple weeks there when I was in California with the family, and we, we did a little bit of beach time, took one or two surfing lessons. I suck, but it was fun. Um, You know, I think every at a certain point in life, you need to find those hobbies that you don't 
that you know you're not going to be any good at, but you have fun doing anyways. And I'm like, I, I'm fine with making a fool out of myself on the surfboard. But, um, but yeah, I, I kind of mentioned to some of the directors, like, look, I think this needs to be my last year. Um, I don't know how much more I have to give. And they suggested, hey, yeah, we think you'd be really good in this DS role. Um, and we, we talked more and more about it and they said, well, let's use the second half of the season to gain some experience and knowledge so that, uh, so the next year I can just transition more seamlessly into the, into the role. So I'm headed to the Vuelta, um, to kind of just learn and shadow some of the directors there and, uh, and yeah, get a feel for what's, uh, what lies ahead. But um, then if you want to be a DS, that probably means you're still going to live a large part of the year in Europe. What does your wife and your kids say to that? They were actually really excited about it. I mean, when I told them <laughs> that I wanted to, that I was ready to stop cycling, their first reaction was like, okay, that's great, but are we still going to get to go to Europe? I mean, we haven't been able to travel the last two years because of COVID. Uh, they almost feel a little bit cheated because they're like, but we weren't with you traveling in Europe and we still want to be doing that. And I'm like, well, hey, good news because I can be a director and we still get to do that. So they're they're super excited about it. Well, one thing, you know, having gone through this myself is directing a team uh, in this day and age is not as easy as it sounds. Um, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, they just drive the car behind. You know, they, you know, it's the riders that do the race. They shout into their ears over earpieces. But what has been the biggest like adjustment or thing that you've had to learn from basically being a catered to athlete to now being the one doing the catering to the athletes? Ooh, well, I mean, okay, you mentioned the driving, how that might have been the easy part. That's actually going to be a tricky part for me. Like if anyone's ever been in a car with me, it's that's going to be an adjustment for me. I'm used to being uh, chauffeured around. But um, honestly, it's it's going to be the technology that's involved. I mean, the race tactics I get, the motivational speeches, that stuff, I feel like I feel like that stuff will come easy to me just with my experience and just, uh, you know, the way I interact with riders and teammates. Um, but all this technology these days, like, man, I remember when I first started racing, there was like a real home court advantage. Um, and doing recon was a real advantage. We, I remember there was this, uh, these few stages in the 2014 tour where there was these, there was these stages in the Vosges, which is where the Planche de Béfi is. And a couple of these stages on paper didn't look like they were going to cause a huge selection. So we were like, why are we wasting time and energy and resources to go and do recon here? Um, But then having done it, and once we got into the race, we would make our way to the front and there would be no fighting for the front. We'd get, we would be in the front on this nervous section. We'd be like, oh, thank God we did the recon. Nowadays, with all these apps like VeloViewer and you know, everybody just knows what's coming up. Everyone gets fed all of this information. And of course, it's, it's great information. You have to have it. If you don't have it, then you're, then you're behind. But it it takes away sort of any of the home court advantage and makes all the teams fight for everything. And I think that's actually why we're seeing more crashes these days. Like when I watched the tour this year, oh my God, like it was one of the first times in, in 10 years that I've watched the tour on TV and I was like, 
there is no part of me that wants to be there right now because everyone's just fighting for every corner. And uh, it, I mean, cycling definitely has changed a lot in that regard. But, um, you know, something's still drawing me to it. That's why I want to be a director. <laughs> If you want to be a director, um, you need to do a course, right? Like later this year with the UCI for the official license or can you just jump in there? Well, I'm, I'm jumping in just as kind of a like an intern right now at the Welta and then this November I'm uh, I'm set up for a course in Switzerland um, to get officially licensed and get all the you know all the I's dotted and the T's crossed yeah that that UCI course um, it's quite long there there's no doubt about it and um, I took it back in 2014 or 2015 and let me just say um, It was quite difficult dealing, you know, asking one of the UCI officials a specific question. And a lot of the time it was, it, the answer started with, it depends. And you're just sitting there like, wait a second, there's, a, there's rules and they're interpreted black and white. But, you know, as we've seen time and time again, that doesn't seem to be the case. So um, I wish you the best of luck with that. Hopefully you'll have a, a good crew of people to go through that course with because, um, yeah, it is quite long. I think they shortened it from the original seven days down to five, but it's still, still a long thing. But going back to what you said about the riders knowing the courses and, you know, doing the, the recon and all the technology involved, I mean... One of the things that we've seen very recently was your boy Nielsen Paulus uh, winning San Sebastian. And one of the things that he said was on his Garmin, he saw that there was a sharp turn coming up and he was prepared for it. And the other guys kind of overshot it. I mean, Jens, can you imagine if we would have had that sort of information on our head units back back in the day? It would have been, I, th I, I take that as such a major advantage, but... What do you, I mean, you're on, on uh, Palace's team, you're on EF um, Education Nepo. Um, is that a function that all the riders have now, or is it just the, the teams that are using Garmin head units? I mean, I'm not really familiar with some of the other head units like, like Wahoo or all the, or I don't know if SRM has a, a GPS unit these days, but um, definitely... You know the map, uh, the map function on the Garmin. It's it's a huge advantage, and you know honestly, you know how when you're one of the older guys, you uh, it takes you longer to adopt some of that technology. Like I remember in the race meeting, I was still pulling out my race book. You know the race bible. The race bibles they're kind of a thing of the past these days because now everyone pulls out you know their i their iPad or laptop and they're looking at VeloViewer for all the information. Um. I see. I was like, still, you know, had a had a pen and like a little, like roll of tape that I can mark kilometers on like a little stem sticker. That's just like those days are. I, I was archaic in that thinking, like already years ago. That was cutting edge back then, Yenzi. You remember, yes. like, you know, pulling out that little piece of kinesio tape and slapping it on your stem, like that. That was cutting edge. For like, sure. you, like you did you your know, homework like, if was, you had that. I'm like stuck in between that generation. Like I remember when I, when I first turned pro, that was the year that it was like universal that the DI2 shifting came out. And I remember Bert Grapsch, he was like, you know, the old crotchety German. He was like, oh, I just want the old stuff. And I was thinking like, man, this stuff is the business. But 
you fast forward like 10, 12 years later and I'm getting all this new technology and I'm like, what the hell? What's wrong with the stem stickers and the race Bibles and the, but you know, time moves fast. Um, yeah. Anyways, where we're, yeah. The, so the, the maps on the Garmin, um, no, it's a huge advantage. And you, like I said, it took me a while to adopt that. Cause I was just kind of like, I don't want to be looking down. I feel like it's safer just to actually look ahead at the road, you know, but all of a sudden we were going down these descents and we were like flying through these blind corners and I couldn't believe how fast we were taking them. And I was just like, how do these people know what's coming up in this blind corner that like, how do they know that they can take it this fast? Because I, I always thought I was a decent descender, but it was shocking how fast these guys were taking it. And they were saying, yeah, they're looking at the map. They, they can see the corner before it comes. So they know that they can, okay, it, they can rail this corner, even though they can't see um, the outside of it, or they know like, okay, we better back off because it really turns back on itself. So once I adopted it, I was, I was reluctant because I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't see the problem with this. Just all not knowing and all just going slower. What's wrong with just all going slower if we don't, but that's the thing. Once, once one person does it, if you're not doing it, you're behind. So everyone's got to do it. And would you also think um, that the general fitness of riders is so much closer to each other. I mean, back in the days, you know, he could uh, like attack with 50, 60k to go every day and go solo. Nowadays, people just laugh and go, oh, look at the idiot, he's attacking 50k or 50 miles to go, right? I mean, it, it feels like The second, third helper is almost as strong as the leader. That's why the groups stay longer together. And that's why we have more crashes in the finals because normally there would be 10, 15 riders together. Now it's 50, right? Or if there's a group of 50, normally now there's 100 riders left. So because, the, like you mentioned, the Tour de France this year, it was brutal to see. I even put a tweet out, said, look, this is... I have done 24 tours, 17 as a bike rider, seven as a commentator. This was by far the hardest, meanest, and most demanding first week of the tour I have ever seen. But I also think part of it is technology. Everybody goes faster. But also everybody is so crazy fit that basically nobody gets dropped anymore. Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. I mean... I don't know. I have definitely seen, you know, Vanderpool, he's stuck some 50k solo breakaways. So I can't say that, you know, you don't see that true. anymore because, true. Uh, you know, that that still happens. But um, I don't know. I mean, you. I, I like to think that I think there's something else. There's something that we're not putting our finger on that I, I feel like most of the time. Teams used to come to the tour with certain goals. Okay, we have a sprinter. The GC guys let the sprinters do their thing. Okay, we're here for GC. You know, so on a GC day, the sprinting teams, they hold back and they do their thing. Nowadays, I feel like teams, they want to spread their resources across the board to try to get success in different areas, um, which as they should be. If it's a Tour de France, you know, you want to take everything you can get. You don't want to leave anything on the table. But um What that, what that means is every team on every day is fighting for something, whether it's, whether it's the sprint finishes, whether it's the GC, whether it's the breakaways, like, um, or even just the intermediate points. It's like no team just says, you know what? We get a day off today, boys. Um, 
I feel, I feel like you used to see that more often. To switch gears here a little bit, uh, TJ, you know, we're, we're now in that, that transfer season for all the, the teams, you know, they're, they're recruiting new guys, guys are switching teams, guys are retiring, you know, they kind of have to figure out that, that special sauce formula again. But coming from, uh, you know, a writer like yourself that's been a pro for so long, you know, you've made that change from team to team. What are some of the things that you have to think about when you are switching teams? And if you are brought to a team in a leadership position, what are some of the pressures that you feel not only changing teams, but changing teams and then having to lead those teams? Yeah, you... uh... So yeah, I raced for three different professional teams. I started on HTC, moved to BMC for seven years, and then uh, spent my last three years on EF, Education First. Um, and yeah, I, there, there's a number of factors you have to take in to account when you're switching teams. I mean, if it's, uh, does the team fit your riding style? Is it a team geared more towards general classification? Is it a team geared towards, you know, the cobbled spring classics? Um, do they, are they going to have certain support riders Do the, do the riders who are currently on the team, are you going to be able to integrate and mesh with them? So, I mean, I was lucky to always be racing for more or less American teams or American registered teams, even though BMC was largely Swiss. Um, so I, I, but I always had like Finney and, you know, even George Hincapie was on the team on BMC. And then I come to EF and I have Alex Howes and I have, uh, you know, even Finney was on the team when I first came here and guys like Mike Woods. So guys who I already knew and raced with even when I was a junior. So, you know, the integration never really seemed uh, too hard for me. Um, I think the biggest uh the biggest transition for me was actually transitioning from the amateurs to HTC because I was like, all right, now that I'm a Neo pro, I have to prove myself. I'm at the bottom of the pecking order and, um, you know, you're starting from zero, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. And there's other factors, obviously financial factors or, you know, who's, who's offering what, who's, uh, you know, who has the most like-minded approach. But at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, if, if your legs can speak for themselves, then, you know, you're going to be fine. Looking back at your career, TJ, could you pinpoint one moment, one day where you went, this is where I was the most proud of myself or my performance? It doesn't have to be a win. It could be, of course. Like one day that sticks out. Do you have any moment like we go, yes, that was, I was at my best. Can I pick a can I pick a race instead of a day? Like a, uh, of course, yes, yeah, of course, of course. All right, because it was a it was a 2015 Dauphiné. Um, I don't know. There, there's it wasn't a win. I finished second place, but I wore the leader's jersey for a number of days. BMC won the team time trial, so that put me uh, in the yellow jersey. Actually, Rowan Dennis took the yellow jersey, but then the next day was a summit finish, and. Uh, Bardet attacked on a, on a long descent and Froome went after him, but Bardet was already, you know, had clear daylight. And I went after Froome, actually caught, dropped Froome and put a, put a little bit of daylight in between us. I took the yellow jersey that day and I was thinking like, I'm going to win this Dauphiné. 
Um, the next day there was this gigantic breakaway. My whole team got exploded in this rainy, just technical, like hilly hard day. Um, Nibali, Valverde, Roy Costa went up the road. Nibali took the jersey and I just decided like, I'm going to mark Froome. Like I can't mark everybody, but I'm going to mark Froome. Froome's not going anywhere. He's staying in the bunch. So I let the other guys go. Nibali takes the jersey and on the next day I said, hey Froome, why don't we get this jersey back? Why don't we make this a race between the two of us and let's drop these guys. They're going to pay for their effort the next day or from the day before. So Froome and I, we attack on, uh, it was, it was to Mont Blanc. Some of, some have finished to Mont Blanc. We're working together and, uh, and you know, the, the deal was I'll take the jersey back. You get the stage win. But then Froome got a little greedy and he, and he attacked me and he was like, and he just kind of like, Hey, look, deal's off. I'm going. And I was like, you mother, you son of a bitch. Like, and I, so I was going after him, right? And at the time, I wasn't thinking like, wow, this is Chris Froome. He's the standard of stage racers of our generation. I was just thinking like, I want to I want to beat this mug, you know what I'm saying? And he gets a little bit of time on me, claw, claws a little bit back. I think he gained like 15 seconds or something, uh, you know, including the time bonus, whatever that came out to. So I we were going into the last final stage. I had a 10 second advantage. So I knew all I need to do is stick on Froome's wheel and that 10 seconds was enough to um, negate any time bonuses that he could have taken. All I had to do was make sure there was no daylight between me and Froome. Well, Froome attacks and I'm, I, I'm trying like hell to hold his wheel and I cannot hold his wheel. I see a little bit of daylight emerge and and then it was like, he didn't beat me by much. And by the end of the day, it was only, only 10 seconds that Froome beat me by. And at the time I was pissed at the time I was thinking like, damn it. Like I missed out on a, on what would have been the biggest race of my career. But looking back and reflecting on it, I was like, man, I was, I was given the best rider in the world at, at the time, some serious work, you know? And I don't think many people can say that, you know, they, they pushed Chris Froome to his limit in order to beat me. So that might not have been a win. Um, but in my mind, that was the best battle I had ever fought. That's a good story. Yes, I agree. That's nice. Yeah, uh, Mr. Chris Froome is no downstream frog, that's for sure. I mean, you're going against the best when he's at his best getting ready for, for the tour. Um, Obviously, that, he went that, on to win the tour that year, put all of us to shame. And so, like, you know, like his his legend continues. But I was like, I'll take that little piece where I was like, all right, I, I gave I gave Chris Froome a little work. I'm proud of that. And, and the greatest part of what you recounted was not a victory. It was an internal victory. It wasn't, you know, the top step of the podium, but it was something that you remember for forever. And I didn't get to win that many races. I think, um, I think I told you this before. I only got to put my hands up once as a professional. And uh, I have a lot more of those second and third place little battles that you're talking about as, as memories more than, you know, some, some big victory. But g going back to, like you said, you know, your, your career, um, what do you think? I mean, y you had a long career, a lot of peaks, you know, some valleys along the way. But what do you believe was your biggest strength and weakness as a rider? Because now that you're retired, you can admit this. I don't think you would admit your weakness when you were racing. At least I didn't. But then afterwards, I was like, man, I could have 
I could have done this better. I could have done that better. But what what were what were your your greatest strengths attributes, and then maybe the thing that you struggled with the most? So, I think one of my biggest strengths was I could I could win the races I was supposed to win. Like if if I showed up and I knew the competition was was such that at such a level that I knew that I could perform like in tour California and like those us pro challenge and those races, I knew like, this is my home turf. Um, the level is not as high as it would be in the tour de France or the Dauphiné. Um, so I know I can win this and I would step up and I would, I could win it. So I was kind of a front runner in that regard. So the flip side of that is I think if someone you, you know, like Mike Tyson always had that uh, that saying, like everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face and then and then your plan goes out the window. So I think there were a lot of times when I thought I showed up fit, I showed up confident, but then another rider might have, you know, just just kind of put me in my place a little bit and I would have shrank. So I would kind of it was hard for me to ride up to the level of competition, but if I was able to just front run on the competition, I could, I could run away with it. But yeah, I wish I would have just, uh, been always able to ride to the best of my ability, no matter what place or how I was going to do. Um, because like I said, like, like that Dauphiné story, I just said, it wasn't a victory. Um, but I was proud of it because I didn't, I didn't shrink to the competition. I rode, to the level of competition. Um, I just wish I would have done that more often. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get a hard copy of Valley News Magazine, choose two books a year from VeloPress, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Peloton Magazine, and Backpacker. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value every year in one $99 subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com slash outside plus and enter Bobby Jens 25 all one word lowercase at checkout you'll receive our special 25% discount and you make a good deal great. And now back to our chat with TJ. So uh, TJ, a little jump uh, back into the presence. Are you just riding your bike every day still like a bike rider or less or more or do you need mentally your body needs a break from it? Or you go, nah, I wake up, I have my coffee and I jump on a bike. Well, what's your day looking like uh, today, tomorrow, yesterday? I, I definitely still love riding the bike. I mean, honestly, if I could, if I could get paid just to, just to train, I would follow a training plan and I'd, I'd be perfectly happy just riding my bike all day. Um, it, was, it was more just the racing that stopped being as, as much fun to me or that I just I just stopped being able to perform at the level I was accustomed to, but I still love exercise. I love getting out on the bike. I've actually been doing a lot of push-ups, trying to like, you know, 
before, you know, when you're a cyclist, you want the skinniest arms as possible. You don't want to be carrying around any extra weight. So like, even when it comes to lifting your suitcase up onto the bed, you kind of like prop it under your knee to kind of get a little leverage. So do anything to avoid putting any strain. Like you, you don't want to, you don't want to flex your bicep at all. And ever since I stopped, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start doing a hundred pushups a day. And at first I was doing them like ones and twos, you know, like I, I could barely do any. Now I can, I can bust out 40 in a row and just, and like, you know, do some like incline pushups. I've been doing a lot of gym work. I mean, I, like fitness is always going to be like a big part of my life. And I definitely love riding my bike. I actually just caught up with uh, Brent Bookwalter today. He just came back from uh, the tour, the Czech tour. And uh, so we just did a two hour spin around here in Girona. And I'm like, I'm like, man, you know, riding bikes, it's, it's so much fun. But uh, racing bikes, that's a bit more brutal. It's funny. I think all of us have that moment when you wake up one morning and you're like, I'm done. I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, because your retirement was very similar to mine, I retired in uh, right after the Tour de Suisse in 2008. And you've retired kind of halfway through the season as well. I'm interested to hear what was that moment? What was that realization? What were those things that changed from, you know, the day before, a week before, a month before, compared to that day when you drew a line in the sand and said, I'm done? It's funny you ask that. I actually remember the exact moment. I was in the Giro um, and it was this it was this really rainy, cold, like kind of miserable day. And we, we go up this big climb. We didn't actually go all that hard up this climb, but it was, it was an, it was a decent climb, like a cat one, but you went down a little bit and then you rode for a long ways on this plateau. And on this plateau, it was like this crazy crosswind that actually ended up making uh, more of a selection than the climb did itself. And I was there in the lead group with me, Hugh Carthy, Jens Kukler, um, Ruben Guerrero. So like we had a we had a decent, you know, representation from EF up in that group. And then uh, as we were going up the other part of the plateau, it was just like this. It was this kind of not false flat. It was a climb, but it was like massive crosswind on this climb. And I was getting a little tailed off the back and I was back there with Jens Kukler, my teammate. And uh and we were just barely off the back. We could see the lead group. And as we start hitting this massively long descent, Jens, we get smacked with this gust of wind. And uh, and our bikes like go sideways on this wet road. And like our we kind of lose traction on our on our tires. And and it was like this scary kind of oh shit kind of moment. And after that moment, Jens Kukler, I could see in his mind, he was just like put that behind me. We got to go get that group. And in my mind, I was like, fuck this. I am not risking this. And I ended up alone. I ended up alone for like 50 K on this freezing cold descent because like the groupetto was way behind the lead group. I wasn't catching them. And, uh, and I was like miserable, alone, cold, shivering, just like creeping down this descent. And you know, when you, when you start to shiver, you lose all control of your bike. So I was just creeping down 
down this descent. Finally, the Gruppetto catches me. You know, I and I, I kind of like limped to the finish line. We had this other big, massive summit finish to get up to before I before I could actually hop in the bus and take a warm shower. And I go up to Jens and I was like, oh my God, how scary was that moment? Like that, that freaked me out. Like, and I asked him, did you make it back to that front group? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I made it back. I was like, son of a bitch, that split second decision I made to just say like, F this was the difference between actually going up there and being able to contribute to the team or just being like a sad sack in the back of the Peloton or in the back of the Gruppetto. And I was like, you know what? I feel like that kind of defined it right there because five, six, eight years ago, I wouldn't have thought twice twice about it. I'd have been like, hey, this is a race. We got to do whatever it takes, you know? And at that point, I was like, if I'm not willing to do whatever it takes, like put my body on the line or, or risk that kind of, you know, just just risk life and limb just, just to get to that front group, then maybe I can help out in other ways. Maybe I can, but... I don't think I'm going to help out with my legs anymore on the road. Great answer. Mm -hmm. Great answer. I think uh, we all have that similar story and it all entails one of those terrible weather days and just questioning like, why am I here? And um, I'm glad that you were able to um, adjust your, your schedule because there's nothing like having to finish a season. And I think, you know, props should be given to the management there at Education First for seeing that and allowing that to happen and then charting a different course for you moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think without the, uh, the directing gig that's, that's coming up that it might not have been possible. But, um, I think since, since I was able to slot into this role and kind of use this part of the season to, you know, get prepared. I think that's how it was able to happen, but absolutely they deserve props. I think they were, um, you know, they've been super respectful, treated me with a lot of dignity. They, uh, and yeah, I gotta, I gotta give a big shout out and a big thank you to, uh, to the guys up like up in the front office at, at EF. So TJ, when are you going to go and see the family again then after Tour of Spain or you uh, stay around for the World Championships and all that? And you got one child, Rylan, right? Um, now that you're retired, any plan? Uh, two children. Any any plans, any ideas of having more children now? Um, no, I think our I think two two girls is enough. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go do just the first week of the Vuelta. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of shadow intern, uh, get a feel for, for what's going on there. I'll come back and then the family's going to meet me in Europe. Um, we're going to take a little trip, kind of have a little vacation. I want to go back, uh, up North to Holland to stay with some of the family that I actually lived with when I was racing for Rabobank. Um, cause I, obviously I have a Dutch last name, so I have, uh, half my family's is Dutch and I was living with, uh, my, I guess you'd call them my grand aunt. It was my grandfather's sister. Uh, I lived with them for two years as I was racing for the Rabobank Continental team. And I see them every now and then, but obviously not as much as I would like to. Um, so we definitely want to go pay them a visit and kind of rehash some of the, some of the younger years when I was an amateur trying to trying to make it into the pros. Um, and then I actually got in touch with Jim Miller about 
the possibility of directing the men's uh, national team at the world championships. Um, so that I'll already be up north, you know, visiting families. So then uh, if I can go do that, I think that would just add um, another great experience to, to lead into next year. And then obviously I have that uh, director's course I need to get out of the way. Hopefully that, uh, hopefully that goes off without a hitch and I can pass that without too much trouble. But that's kind of my plan for the rest of the year. And I think the next season is going to come up before we know it. You know, like you guys know the off season always just, it just kind of flies right by. It really does. And talking about flying by, um, our time has flown by here. But one last question, because TJ, you've always been very well-spoken, very mature. You've experienced a lot, but you know, mental health of athletes is now finally getting the attention that it deserves. And now that you're leading, you're starting a position as a DS, as a coach, as, as a mentor, what advice would you have to these young athletes getting involved in the sport of cycling in order to make sure that their mental health is taken care of? Man, I mean, that, that's a big one. I mean, uh, I mean, we've seen that more and more. And, you know, a lot of times the whole stigma is like, you guys are doing a dream job. You're making good money. Um, you get to travel the world. Why would you be unhappy? But, you know, the, the reality is, is, you know, we're probably all in a calorie deficit from trying to lose weight. We're all chronically tired and fatigued from the training. And we have to spend long time uh, or long periods of time away from our family and loved ones. So I just make sure that, you know, I would just want to be a resource to these guys. Just say, look, if you ever need anything, I know what it's like to be a stranger in the village, have to pack up from everything you know in the US and come over and try to establish a life in Europe. You know, simple things like getting internet set up or getting apartment or buying furniture, those things can be hard. And I was, you know, I've been through all of that. And uh, I would just say like, if you guys ever need anything, you know, use me as a resource and I'm here to help because I've been through it all. I know how hard it can be. And even if it's just something like, hey, if you want someone to get a coffee with or grab lunch with or hopefully my fitness is good enough that maybe I'd be able to even go on a ride with them. You know, that'd be that'd be cool for me. And hopefully that'd be cool for them, too. But really just be yeah, just be a sounding board and just be someone that they felt comfortable enough to talk to. TJ. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was, first of all, great to catch up with you, to see you again. And thanks for coming on our podcast. Thanks for all the great answers. It was a great chat. So hopefully, maybe middle of next year, we talk again and you tell us how you're going to prepare your team for the Tour de France. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you guys so much. I mean, yeah, it's been it's been too long since I've caught, not, caught up with both of you guys. So let's, uh, yeah, let's make this a more regular thing. Sounds good. TJ, all the best to you and your family in your transition to the other side of the barriers, my friend. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Good to see you. Take care. Take care, TJ. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to TJ for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a five-star review and absolutely share us with your friends. The show was a value news production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mosser. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. I gotta say, one of my favorite parts of training on Zwift is the community. Whether it's riding with new people you meet on the platform or riding with old teammates, the people that Zwift connects you with push you harder than you could ever push yourself, let alone when it's just you on the trainer, in your garage, or your pain cave somewhere. My next favorite part is the training. Training is a huge part of Zwift. There are literally hundreds of customizable training plans you can choose from. And every workout is an immersive experience that can take you from Zwift's world-class climbs to the streets of London, New York, and even to a new Japanese-inspired world. Those are just a few of the nine unique worlds you can explore. Many times, I find myself just riding around, checking out the sights and seeing new little Easter eggs they've hidden in the game. When I'm riding on one of the UCI championship courses or in the jungle on the gravel roads or inside a volcano, I'm just taking it all in. Time seems to fly by, but I still manage to get a great workout in every time. If you want to compete in races that put your training to the test and see if you're headed in the right direction, you can. There's a new event starting every five minutes, including massive group rides, races for every category, and time trials. Right now, you can join the Fun is Fast event series with training rides, races, and thousands of other riders from around the world to chase. It's really never been easier to find your fun training indoors. I love it. All you need to get started is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Zwift, where fun is fast.